Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome back. I'm delighted to be joined by a man who, perhaps you would say for his sins, has undertaken the role of president of the ROA from 96 to 98 and then chairman of what was then the British Horse Racing Board, later to become the British Horse Racing Authority from 98 to 2004. What might possess such a person, you might ask yourselves, to re-enter the, the racing political fray? Um, that's my first question to you, Peter Savile. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the, I think this goes back to about three years now where I had a lunch with a lot of the leading trainers uh, in London mm -hmm. and we talked about the problems of racing and I threw out a few ideas and they said, well, would you prepare, be prepared to do a bit of work on it? So um, I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. And so I sat down with my son, Thomas, who's very involved in racing, loves racing, mm -hmm. and had grown up understanding quite a lot about the politics of racing. And we started to put together some ideas. Uh, we then came back, I think, in about nine months later and presented those to the group that we'd, we'd formed, which was mainly horsemen. Um, and they wanted us to, to put those ideas to the leading owners or representatives of the leading owners, uh, which we did, I think, in December 2020. Then we decided that we needed to widen the, the, the net and it became obvious to me that we, we needed to involve racecourses as well. So we did a sort of uh, uh, tour of England visiting all the major racecourses where we got lots of different views and I finally came to the conclusion that I had to get everybody in the same room otherwise we weren't going to make any progress at all. And how did you find that? How did you find the um, spirit in, in the room when you, when you got people all together? Fantastic. I mean, surprisingly so. Yeah, very much so. I mean, we had we, we we put together people who were not actually leaders of the industry in terms of actual positions in official bodies. Ah, so they we, were senior people. You would call senior figures. Yeah, there were people influencers and people who had a, a, a big investment in the industry and an in, interest in the industry. Um, but we deliberately didn't have anybody, say, from the BHA or the Levy Board or any of the official groups like the ROA or the RCA. But they were all people who, you know, Ascot, Goodwood, the major race courses, major trainers, representatives of leading owners, um, and a, a few other people as well. We, we've got the betting industry involved. Uh, Flutter uh, were part of the group. Uh, the Tote mm -hmm. were part of the group. And we, we found that there was a real sort of, uh, A, similar to what Julie was talking about earlier, a real desire to, to understand and accept that the change was needed and what uh, we gradually got into what those changes should be. I think, I think a lot of people from the outside are thinking, hang on a minute, this is exactly what Peter Savile was trying to sort out 20 years ago. Why now is there some sort of apparent consensus that things need to change? And more to the point, why is there any likelier to be agreement across the industry now relative to, to all those years ago? Do people not still have the same self-serving set of interests? I think they do to a certain extent, but I think that the issues and the problems have got greater. 
and I think when you get to the point where you realize that there are some serious problems that's when people start to say maybe we actually all ought to get together and see what we can do so Julie's point about racing is very good when there's a burning platform she's yeah I would you think she's I, right I, yeah I would agree with that I also think that, that the the focus has changed when I was chairman of, of BHB um, it was the betting industry that I felt and we all felt needed to pay more um, the betting industry now is paying a lot more than it was before both in terms of levy and particularly in terms of media rights mm -hmm. and I don't think that that's the area that we should be particularly looking to to, to get more money from I think we, we've got to do things that mean that they pay more because we do a better job of helping them to, to to put on the right races with the right field sizes. But I don't think that the, the growth in terms of revenue is gonna come from the betting industry in terms of ratcheting up what they pay, other than possibly a, a, a restructure of the levy. So we've heard quite a lot over the last week about growing the cake as a priority rather than trying to create the correct division of the of the cake you know if yeah. you grow it it doesn't really matter how you how you divide it everyone's happy so how do we grow it if we're not growing it by getting <coughs> more money from the betting industry well we get I think we would get more money from the betting industry if we get our field sizes right because people don't want to bet on four runner handicaps they want to bet on decent field sizes and if you get those right then you get better greater betting turnover from the bookmakers. Is so the equation as simple as, is as straightforward as that? The bigger the field, the more people bet. Absolutely. And, and particularly, the more field, the better field sizes you get at the top end, good racing, because people bet more, and more people bet on good racing, and t in particular, televised racing. Mm -hmm. And so we, we actually identified three areas where we felt there was real potential growth in terms of growing the cake. One was expansion of television uh, televised terrestrial televised racing and that's the the big opportunity because when when racing is on television the betting turnover can be as much as four times what it is when it's not on on terrestrial television that's that's so, got to be pretty much at capacity now hasn't it I mean ITV are covering almost one in three racing days probably more actually it's probably up to a sort of one one ten one twenty now I, th I think on Saturday, Sat Saturdays and midweek definitely. Yeah. Sundays is the big opportunity, and you know they, they've done the, they've done the Sunday series. That's six Sundays. We'd like to see that expand to sort of twenty or even more if possible. So what you're trying to do is to put the good stuff in racing shop window. It sounds obvious, yeah, but you don't feel that that's necessarily being met as it stands. No, I think I, th I think we all know that Royal Ascot, Goodwood, York, they're all big meetings. But I think to actually brand our premier product, which is wider than that, uh, and to get the, the, the best horses coming together to race against each other, that's something that we can, we can package and brand. In our view, um, with two Saturday meetings, the midweek festivals, and we hope 20 Sundays all which would be televised, all which would become effectively our premier product. So those Sunday fixtures, they're being taken from elsewhere, presumably. You're not adding more fixtures to an already overcluttered fixture list. No, I don't believe that we should have more fixtures, but I think that you can cut down on some of the Sunday fixtures. I think the important thing is to have a premier racing, the quality racing on a Sunday, on a Saturday, and the big midweek festivals. And there's an opportunity there. Ireland, France other countries 
race on Sundays, that's when people can go racing, and we haven't taken advantage of that. We've had Bouncy Castle Day, as Sunday has been so far. Do you think there's an appetite, a cultural appetite, amongst the British public and British punter for Sunday racing? I do, yes, absolutely. And what evidence do you have for that? That, well, first of all, that it works in other countries, so why but would that not but work? But it hasn't really worked here, has well, it? We've, we've, never, we've not put on quality racing on a Sunday, Well, the, and the, that's the, the problem. Well, the few Sundays we've had with quality racing haven't really worked from a public point of view, have they? Or indeed a TV viewing figures point of view. The 1,000 guineas day on a Sunday, that Cheltenham Sunday in November, they don't register nearly or resonate nearly as much as the Saturdays do. They don't. They're not as, as important as the Saturdays, but they can be improved from what they are now, which is very little interest uh, in Sunday racing, mainly because it's not quality racing. So you think it's very simple. You put the good quality stuff on Sunday, people will watch, people will bet. Definitely. It's already shown in the figures from, sun from the Sunday series which is not top quality racing. I mean, it's, it's middle of the road mm -hmm. racing. And the betting turnover figures are way, way in advance of, of what Sunday racing generally is. And how do you make these field sizes stand up? The problem with field sizes, we, we, we believe we don't need to reduce fixtures. The problem is that the field sizes are all out of kilter with what most racing nations um, produce on, uh, in terms of field sizes, which is, their field sizes are the greatest at the top end because that's where more betting turnover takes place and they're smaller at the bottom end. We've got a complete inverse uh, uh, graph which shows that at the top end our field sizes are the smallest and at the bottom end our field sizes are the, the, the highest. But doesn't that accurately reflect the, the quality of the horse population? Because by its very nature you're going to have more horses who are rated 0 to 70 than you are horses that are rated north of 90. Yeah, and therefore you need to put on more races for them. And we haven't been putting on more races for them. We've been putting on too many races at the top end, which has resulted in having too f small field sizes at the top right. end. So you reduce the number of races at the top end in basically the 75 to 100 range and you put on more races down at the 0 to 65, 0 to 70 um, level. And we've, model, we've modelled that so that you do get a, 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 a graph that goes like that. It, it provides more opportunities down at the bottom end where people really, all they want to do is, is win a race. They know they're not going to cover their costs. And at the top end, it, it brings the horses more together to race against each other and they, they can race for more prize money. First of all, because there are fewer races, mm -hmm. so that prize money per race goes up, but also because we need to feed more money into the top end. If, for argument's sake, I mean, the television landscape changes all the time, if network broadcasters don't want to cover horse racing to the same extent that, that you propose or the same extent that they are, they are doing now, does your plan fall apart or does it still stand up? No, you've still got to level up the field sizes, first of all, which will increase betting turnover and, and bring more money into the sport because betting turnover has been re reducing to a large extent, we believe, because of the lack of quality field sizes. Uh, but the... Um, so, you, so you believe, Peter, that it's more to do with the quality of the, the product, dare I say it, the quality of the sport you're putting on, rather than the sport's own place in the world? Do you think the dimin diminishing interest is more to do with what you're offering people than it is to do with the fact that there are so many other things they're actually more interested in than horse racing? 
I think field sizes are a massive um, factor in whether people go and watch racing, uh, whether it's on television or in the betting shop or whether it's actually live. Uh, I, we know that from field sizes at Plumpton, um, where w when we have smaller field sizes, our crowd is smaller. Mm. So you need to get that. That's critical, we believe. The other thing that's critical is to actually give a proper reward to the people who, who own horses at the top end. And while everybody, or not everybody, but people say it's elitist and, you know, why are you giving more money to rich people? The point is you've got an asset, and those assets now, if you've got a horse rated 85 to 95, people are being offered a quarter of a million, 200,000 for that horse to go to America or go to Australia. Well, we've just been discussing this. I, I, you, we are never going to match the prize money and incentive of Australia, are we, or, or Hong Kong? You, in my view, you don't need to. You, you will never be able to do that. But I think as an owner, if you know that you can cover your costs each year and you've got a, an asset worth 200000 you will probably keep it to get the enjoyment out of racing it. What, where the problem is, is that you've got an asset worth 200000 but you, win, you have to win five races to cover your training costs for the year. So you've got an asset worth 200000 250000 and it's costing you. You're not getting a return on that. You're, it's actually costing you to keep it. So sell it off to America. Take that out and you get to the point where one or two, you win one or two races and you've covered your costs. People don't mind that, uh, that they could sell it for 250000 because that's not why they bought it in the first place. They bought it to race and get the enjoyment out of it. How many horses did you have running in your colours in Britain at, at your peak? 55. How many have you got now? Zero. For the first time in 45 years this year, I have no horse in training in Great Britain. Why? Prize money. Simple as that? Yep. Simple as that. My horses now are in Ireland and France. And I'll come back happily when the situation improves. And were you driven by prize money at all in the first instance? Was there any part of you that thought, <laughs> I want 55 horses in training because of, of the prize money I can win? No, I knew I was losing money every single year. Even the year that I had Celtic Swing, I lost money. So, so, so what does it matter? You get to the point where you think, I'm, I, I haven't considered the alternatives. And um, I live in Ireland now, so I, it makes sense for me to have horses in Ireland. I spend a lot of time in France as well. Um, I spend probably about two or three months in the summer over in Deauville. So it makes sense for me to have horses in France, as well as the fact that if you win a maiden race there, you cover your cost for the year. People will say, Peter hasn't got any skin in the game in Britain now. How can he really know what it feels like as an owner? Well, I, have, I had 45 years' experience of what it feels like to be an owner in Great Britain. But not now, at this point, in this crucial time it, where you are presenting papers to the BHA and saying, this is my plan for the future of the sport. Absolutely, but I know, I know what owning horses in Great Britain has been like, and it hasn't changed. It's got worse, if anything. But does it actually take away from your enjoyment of the sport? The fact that prize money isn't as good here as it is in Ireland and France, does it take away from that moment when, when your horse in those famous maroon and pale blue colours hits the front and something's triggered inside you? Are you thinking about whether you're getting 16 or £21,000 for the, for the prize fund? No, 
I'm not. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed having horses in Great Britain for a very long time. But finally, I've come to the point where I've said, enough is enough. And I hope it changes. And the moment I see it change, I'll be happily back. Did you enjoy your six years as chairman of the British Horse Racing Board? Yes and no. What didn't you enjoy about it most? Oh, the, the factionalisation in, in British racing. I mean, at one stage, I felt I was taking on the race courses and the bookmakers at the same time, and they were in cahoots with each other at some point. Because historically, the, there's been a power struggle between the central governing body and the race courses as to who effectively runs racing. And why is that any different now? I'm not sure that it is, because the... Um, the tripartite agreement uh, has finished up weakening uh, the BHA, which I was, the, I think, the only race course that actually refused to sign up to the tripartite in, in your In your capacity as, as chairman, chairman of Plumpton? Plumpton. Um, I felt it was a, a, a recipe for disaster, and I think everybody now would agree that it has been. By excluding yourself in your capacity as chairman of a small independent race course from that tripartite agreement, did you reap any benefit from that? Were you able to flex your own muscle more effectively? Did it give you no, any freedom? No, it didn't, it didn't make a blind bit of difference <laughs> because I was the only one who didn't sign up, so I was overwhelmed by the majority who did. What was your biggest mistake when you were chairman of the BHB? Probably to be um, too aggressive at times um, and too controversial. What were you trying to achieve with the, the data rights situation back then? Well, I was trying to, to create a situation where data rights became the funding mechanism for, for British racing. Um, but I, those data rights were going to come into BHA, BHB as it was then, um, and would be distributed from there. And that was not popular with uh, a lot of the race courses who felt that that was taking away the funding that they historically had been in control of. Was it the right thing to do, looking back on it? To, to was it the right thing to attempt? Would you, if you had your rights. time again, would you attempt, would you attempt that again? To, ha to depend yeah. on data rights? Yeah. Oh, it was absolutely the right thing. In fact, as I, when I left, we still had data rights and they got overturned by the European Court mm. after I left. Um, there has been some talk about considering, now that we're out of Europe, whether those data rights could be examined again. And have you had any, any feedback on that as to whether that's likely? I've been told by one set of lawyers that it could be done and another set that it couldn't. Is this going to be the next Savile plan? <laughs> no, it, data it, rights? It, should, it should be looked at because ultimately I think it would be, um, I was very much in favour of the levy board uh, being uh, basically sidelined, well not sidelined, not have a, le a levy board anymore, so that racing actually controlled its, its funding mechanism completely and wasn't dependent on the levy board to decide how it wanted to actually allocate funds. And in terms of the fixtures, <coughs> obviously around about that time, we reached a point where the BHA had very limited control, or the BHB and then the BHA had very limited control over the fixture list because it was, it was legally challenged and considered to be anti-competitive. You know all these personalities involved. A lot of the personalities sitting in, in rooms earlier this week that you presented to are either the same or very similar to the ones that were around 20 years ago and representing the same interests. 
Why, in your opinion, are they suddenly going to be more consensual to a to a, a centrally regulated fixture list or more power being given to the BHA? Well, <clears throat> we'll have to wait and see. Um, I'm a total believer that the whole race program and fixture list should be at, operated by the BHA. Yeah. And I don't know how we're going to actually get to the point where we get the right field sizes and the right money into the right rate into those races without a much greater centralization of, ra of race programming in particular. Now, whether race courses are willing to give that up or not, I don't know. But in my view, A, they should be willing to do so. I don't think it's a great deal of power to give up. It's in their interests. And secondly, other countries have centralized race planning. Um, France has centralized race planning. Ireland has centralized race planning. I don't know why we shouldn't also follow suit. Uh, the race courses must therefore take a, at least a medium, if not long-term commercial view in that respect, because surely they would argue, and we saw it the other day with York, invited to apply for a Saturday fixture, got the Saturday fixture, it's entirely self-funded, but it's caused a row with Air, it's caused a row with Catterick. What do you think the BHA would have done if they'd been in control, complete control of, of that fixture process? Would they have said, right, you can't race on that day, we're, we're taking away however many million you will make on that race day? You'd have to ask the BHA. But what should they do, what should they do in a circumstance like that? It's a difficult one. It's a difficult one. And why is it to that race course's medium to long-term benefit if the BHA do, do act like that? Some, there's winners and losers all round in, the, in these situations, and people have to look at the big picture, and there hasn't been enough historically of people looking and acting in the best interests of British racing. Self-interest has been too strong a, a player in British racing for too long. So you believe that for the greater good of the sport, racecourses need to take a more holistic look at this, take I think a step it, I back. Th I think it's in their interest to do so because what's happened is we've had a, um, a fixture programme and a, particularly a race programme that has got completely out of kilter. And that's why we have bad field sizes where people say, oh, we've got to get rid of fixtures. But when you look at it, you don't have to get rid of fixtures. You have to actually reorganize the race program to get the races in the right place and get the mm -hmm. field sizes in the right place. And that hasn't happened. And the reason it hasn't happened is because race, uh, race courses have had too much influence on what race programs are run. Because they can. They can effectively run what they quite want. whenever they want, but yeah. to a greater or lesser extent whenever they want. Um, when you presented to the, to the BHA earlier this, this week or, or, or last strategy week, group, yeah, the strategy yeah. group, sorry, the, the industry strategy group, yeah. the 18 people who made up that industry strategy yeah. group and their names were published in the papers, so as representatives of all the, all the leading bodies, how did you feel it went down? I felt that it went down well. I felt it was well received. Um, I know it was discussed afterwards. Um, what those discussions were, I don't know. Whether any of these ideas will be implemented or not remains to be seen. Do you believe in this BHA management? The current management? Yeah. I think they need to show leadership. Um, I think certainly over the last 10, 15 years, there's been a lack of lead central leadership 
for all sorts of reasons. The tripartite agreement obviously has not helped have leadership uh, when you can have vetoes from other bodies. Uh, but weren't they, weren't they reacting a little bit? I don't mean against you in a negative sense, but wasn't the way that the consensual way that the BHA tried to operate with the tripartite agreement, wasn't that a reaction to the fact that you'd, you had tried to be, and dictatorial is a rude word, but it's all right. um, you, tr you tried to be more decisive and it hadn't worked? Yeah, my belief is that there's two styles of leadership. One is you get everybody together and try and get a consensus opinion where everybody's on side and agrees. That historically in racing hasn't worked. Or you decide what the strategy should be and you lead and drag people with you. In kicking the and screaming. Kicking and screaming yeah. in the belief that that's the, the right way. And if they've got better ideas, we'll then put them forward. But I, I rather unfairly concentrated on... on some of the things that didn't go so well during your time as the BHB chairman. Give me examples of where you did lead, you did drag the industry with you, and it did work. Well, the, 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 the money that was in racing, prize money in racing, and I can't remember the exact figures, I know was up considerably at the end. number of horses in training was, was considerably up. Um, I felt that, you know, the, the main job at that time of BHB was to improve the financial and commercial situation with racing. That disappeared after I left. That was taken away when BHA was given um, regulatory authority. So that, that has been a massive loss. I didn't even realize that until I got back involved two years ago, that that criteria for BHA of having the commercial imperative for the industry had been struck out of its memorandum and articles. Mm -hmm. um, and that's caused a lot of problems. But um, that was, I felt, was my focus, and at that time, the focus was to get more money from the betting industry, who weren't paying enough, and data rights certainly did that. It had, a, had, for the time that I was there at the end, considerable impact in terms of extra money that was coming into racing. If somebody threw you the ball again, would you, would you do the job again? No. Why not? I'm too old. To well, this start. is ridiculous. We've had we've had 40 minutes restructuring the game. You've got an 80-page document there that you've put together with a member of your own family. That's how passionately you feel it in here. Yes, but uh, my, I feel my role now is to advise and and put forward ideas, and it's up to the other the people who are in charge of the industry to implement them. Is it is there, is there a sense within you of unfinished business on this? Yes, that's probably why I got got back involved. So it's just, it's just has, it, has it consistently irritated you since 2004? I wouldn't say consistently irritated me, but, but yes, there, there was a sense that, particularly when data rights were overturned after I left, that there was unfinished business and that I hadn't actually achieved, even though it, w it was after my time, I hadn't actually achieved what I really hoped to have achieved. And so now if I can help in any way and that helps solve the problems or turn the, turn the situation around, then I'm happy to, to contribute. But I don't want to do that from a, from a frontline position. Mm -hmm. I want to do it from behind uh, the scenes and, and providing what help I can provide. You have some great days as an owner and I, I, I really hope you come back to, to owning horses in, in Britain. What do, you think, what do you think an owner wants from the experience? 
I think that the, the, the thrill of having a winner is, is, you know, you can't explain it to somebody who, who has, hasn't owned horses and hasn't had a winner. It's, a, it's an amazing feeling and it never, never leaves you. You probably, after you've been in it as long as I was, you, you get more pleasure out of the, the, the better horses winning better races. But even so, just winning any race, I think, for any owner who loves racing, that's the, that's the thing that motivates them. And I, I, I accept that um, prize money is not the be-all and end-all, but it, but it has to be important because otherwise you get what we're getting at the moment, which is equine drain of horses that are leaving this country in droves. Um, you get uh, loss of owners, which is the other big problem that we've had. Now we have the Queen gone as well. But the number of horses that the four owners who have died in the last few years have got in training this year is half what it was in 2019 between and them 500 horses down to about 250. we've only got about a minute left peter but it would be remiss of me not to ask if you had your time again we've done this a lot but if you had your time again would you have run celtic swing in the derby no definitely not <laughs> he would he he would not have won the Derby under any circumstance, uh, circumstances. The ground was too firm. He had very dodgy front legs, and it, as it turned out, he had actually injured himself in the 2000 Guineas. And Vincent O'Brien told me that he won the French Derby on three legs. And when we looked back at the film, we could see that the horse wasn't 100% on his near four, and he wouldn't have won the English Derby. So there's no point in going going for it. He won the French Derby and that was good enough. Uh, maybe, maybe it'll happen one day. Who knows? You'll be back. <laughs> if you didn't know it already, he's back. Um, Peter Savile, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai.